When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. Joining me today for this episode is Pastor Todd Morrison. Pastor Todd is from the Pacific Northwest. He serves a non-denominational church. He reached out to me through a mutual colleague, and after hearing his amazing story, I invited him to share it on an episode of My Story of Addiction and Grace. Todd has just released his first book entitled A Profound Mercy, Finding Redemption in the Despair of Our Own Doing. It's an extraordinary true story of abandonment, betrayal, risk, and redemption that reads more like a novel than nonfiction. Todd's book is available on Amazon. I'm so grateful for the chance to hear some of his amazing story today. Well, hi everyone. Uh, Pastor Ed here from the Center of Addiction and Faith. And today's podcast, we're going to hear from Pastor Todd Morrison. So Todd and I are relatively new friends. Uh, we just spoke on the phone about three, four weeks ago. When I heard your story, I thought, oh, I'm just starting these podcasts. And I thought, I'd love to hear your story. I'd love to share your story. It's powerful. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Thanks for letting me share. I am serving now in a uh, pastoral role at a large church in Bellevue, Washington. And uh, my focus is primarily been on developing community here, but I've been a lead pastor in, in various settings. And uh, we've been in, in Seattle. I grew up in Chicago, but we've been in Seattle for 25 years uh, with a quick four-year stop in, in Portland. So the Northwest is really home for me and my family. And uh, all three of my daughters were born here. So this is home for us. The denomination that I'm in now is called Converge. It used to be the Baptist General Conference. A lot of Swedish Baptists uh, are in this conference. Uh, but I've also been in, I went to an evangelical free uh, church seminary, and I've spent time with the Christian Missionary Alliance. So I'm kind of like a equal opportunity guy when it comes to denominations. My parents, uh, my earliest memories are of my parents being missionaries. They were with an organization called uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship. And uh, during the summers, they would uh, go from camp to camp in the Midwest. So we had this little green pop-up camper that we would drive around Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Minnesota. And my parents would uh, would speak to kids at camps. You know, they had the flannel graph and the flip chart back in the 70s, you know, to tell the stories of Jesus and his disciples. So, uh, and that's how I came to faith. Uh, when we weren't doing that in the summer, they would do five-day clubs at our house in, uh, in, in Springfield, Illinois, actually, at the time. And so we just invite neighborhood kids. They'd send me out to invite all the neighborhood kids to our house and uh, they'd start with uh, cookies and juice on Monday and tell, you know, Sunday school stories all week and then ask the kids if they wanted to put their faith in Jesus at the end of uh, close the deal on Friday kind of thing. So we did that. And then uh, we were in Copenhagen, Denmark for a number of years and my parents did the same thing there. Um, I picked up the language quicker than they did. They went over without knowing any of the language. So uh, at five, six years old, I was their translator throughout Copenhagen, which I thought I was, you know, awesome at it, but uh, it had to be hilarious to the people watching us because I'm sure I didn't have quite the grasp of the language that I thought I did. Yeah, my parents were missionaries, but that all that all fell apart uh, later on. You know, uh, I, as early as our time in Copenhagen, I remember my parents fighting with each other and my dad leaving for hours at a time and, you know, just not knowing where he was going. So they were pulled off the mission field. We came back to Chicago and uh, which was home base for us. My dad did a couple years of ministry things and, you know, jobs in Chicago, uh, but then went into a corporate job where he rose through the ranks pretty quickly. And as he rose through the ranks, the higher he went, the uh, the more problems my parents seemed to have. In their he was gone more, uh, took a lot of extended 
business trips and then ultimately moved our family from Chicago to Tallahassee, Florida, which was like moving to a different country for me. I was not prepared for that. I was thinking, hey, we're moving to Florida. It's going to be beaches and Disney World. But it was uh, Tallahassee, which is there are no beaches and Disney World is uh, about six hours away from there. Tallahassee at the time, 1983, was a college town, um, but it was also very much a southern town. So I'll never forget going into a band class. Mr. Miller's band class, I was in eighth grade and I sat next to a kid named Shane, which is just the perfect name. And he had he had a T-shirt on that that had uh, a skull with a cowboy hat and the rebel flag waving in the back. And on the cowboy hat were the letter CSA. And he's looking at me and he's like, where are you from? You know, and I said, and if you have any Southern listeners, I apologize, but this is this, this is the story. He said, you know, where are you from? I said, Chicago. He says, you're a Yankee. And I said, well, I guess so. You know, and he said, you know what these letters stand for? And I said, no, he said, Confederate States of America, the South is going to rise again. And he was serious about that. So that was a huge challenge for me to live in that place. Um, and it was even more so a challenge because my dad was never around. Uh, he took me on a, on a trip. Uh, we were big baseball fans in Chicago. We used to go to White Sox games a lot. And uh, while we were living in Tallahassee, he took me on a trip to Atlanta uh, to see the Cubs play the Braves, which I thought was, you know, going to be a fantastic time for my dad and I to reconnect. And, uh, you know, I think I thought he had recognized that, you know, maybe uh, our relationship had drifted and he was trying to pull it back together, but that was not the purpose of this trip. We went to a baseball game on a Friday night. I'll never forget that game. Cubs won. Uh, the next morning, uh, he took me to breakfast on the other side of Atlanta from where we were staying. And he said, hey, I just want you to meet some people that I know and this restaurant that I go to every time I'm here. So we go to the restaurant and uh, we meet the waiter and the waiter knows my dad, you know, and he's a uh, young uh, curly haired guy. I'll never forget named Dwayne. And, you know, he was very uh, outgoing and, and uh, extroverted. And he comes up to my dad and he goes, Hey, Al, you know, how you doing? And uh, so good to see you, sweetie. And who's this, who's this guy you have with you, you know? And he's like, Oh, it's my son, Todd. And, uh, you know, Todd like you to meet Dwayne. And I'm sitting there going, wow, there's some history between these guys. And, you know, Dwayne's obviously gay, but what is that? You know, what, so I had no idea. The next thing my dad did is he took me on a drive through a part of Atlanta that was, was a really nice part of Atlanta, but there were, there's this one spot where there were all these cars uh, lined up and it looked like, you know, today you might think there were a bunch of Uber drivers waiting for, for somebody to, to uh, show up for a ride. But as we drove by uh, each guy, there's just a guy in the car uh, in the driver's seat. And each guy was kind of looking at, you know, uh, looking at us as we drove by and we got to a Mercedes and the Mercedes guy actually opened up his door to reveal himself wearing a trench coat, which he began to reveal to me until he looked at me and saw that he was looking at a 13 or 14 year old kid. And to his credit, he uh, covered himself back up and, and hid himself away. And I, we, as we drove away, my dad said, did that guy just flash us? And I'm like, yeah, oh, he flashed me actually, you know, and uh, he tried to make uh, a, a light of it, make a joke out of it, but I could tell that it threw him. But the purpose of that trip was not for us to reconnect or to, to go to baseball games. It was for my dad to not tell me that he was gay, but to show me that he was gay. I, I think had he told me about it, I think I would have taken it much better than, than how it went. He, uh, he showed me, and as a 13 or 14 year old at that time, I wasn't sure how to deal with that or what to do with it. And uh, what I realized quite quickly is that I now had a burden uh, that I just didn't know how to bear. I knew more about my parents' marriage and why it wasn't going to work than my mother did. You know, sharing it would be a betrayal of my father, but not sharing it would be a betrayal of my mother. No idea. Your mom has no idea. No, not at that point. So I just, I just got angry at everybody. And, uh, and they, they ended up shipping me off to, to Michigan to live with my aunt and uncle, which was rough. The last decision my parents ever made together as a married couple was to, uh, to send me off to, uh, to live with relatives and, in Michigan. I'm sorry, Todd, was that a decision based on the fact that your mom did find out and then decided it would be best to have you gone? Is that? Yeah, good, good question. Yeah. So, uh, she, I don't know how she found out they, they split up and I think she just discovered it on her own. I don't think I, I shared very much of that with her, but, uh, neither one of them really wanted me 
to live with him at that time. I was really angry with my mother and, uh, you know, she was trying to raise two, my two sisters. And then my dad, you know, he just wanted to explore his new freedom and, uh, mm-hmm. to have me living with him would be, was too much of a challenge for him. So they, uh, they sent me to live to, uh, in Michigan with my, my aunt and uncle, which, like I said, I hated him for it, but it was a reprieve. It gave me some, uh, time and distance away from the madness of my family allowed me to be a city kid in a small town. And, uh, you know, I was popular pretty quickly and, um, played sports there. So it was great, uh, for the year that it lasted. I was in a town where, uh, all the cool kids wore jean jackets, Levi jeans and uh, white Nike hot high tops. And the other kids were like the burnouts. They were, uh, jeans not jean jackets but leather jackets jeans and white nike high tops and the only thing that was different was the jacket um but i wore like the i look like i I was in the cast of the breakfast club you know i had like the long cool uh tweed jacket with the skinny tie and you know the boat shoes and they just didn't know what to do with me there but um they had a lot of questions for me and and given my my history I, i became pretty popular pretty quickly but that only lasted for a year and while i was there my dad called me and and he's like hey you know i gotta tell you something uh you know i i'm gay and i just said really uh i figured that out that weekend back in atlanta you know and uh and he said, oh, you did? And I said, yeah, I, I kind of did. And he said, well, I've got, a, I've got a, a special somebody in my life and his name's Joe and I want you to meet him over the phone. I, I didn't want to meet Joe. I could have cared less about Joe. So he put him on the phone. I was like, hey, what's up? And he, he, was, he didn't want to talk to me either. He was like, hey, what's up? And that was it. And that was all I had hoped I would ever have to deal with Joe. But that was not all. Uh, that was just the very beginning. My aunt and uncle decided to, uh, that while it was, nice to uh, help my parents out by having me live with them for a year. It was better if, uh, if I moved on. So I ended up moving back, living back with my dad and Joe. Uh, he cashed out of his corporate job and was looking for a, um, a business opportunity, you know, something that he could own and run himself. We lived in Fort Lauderdale for a little while and uh, we ended up moving to Charleston, South Carolina, where my dad bought a one hour Photoshop on the corner of King and Calhoun Street, downtown Charleston, right in the middle of the tourist district, beautiful Charleston. And it was in this little mall, which is now a CVS pharmacy, but in this little mall, there were about five shops. There was a video store, a Chinese restaurant, uh, a hoagie shop, and a uh, t-shirt shop. Um, my dad and Joe uh, running this uh, one hour photo meant that they had to be there six days a week from at least 10 to six. And I thought my dad could do it, but I, I didn't think there was a chance that Joe would ever do that every day because uh, I don't think he'd ever worked in his life. And he didn't. He was there about half the time. Uh, but I got to know a couple of the other store owners in that mall. There were two Italian guys, one from New York, one from Philadelphia. Uh, the Philadelphia guy owned the, the hoagie shop and the guy from New York owned the t-shirt shop. And I actually went to work for the t-shirt guy. And they were really my salvation during this time because those guys got together on Friday nights and played cards. And you know, I was 15, 16, they were 28 and 35. And yet they brought me into their world and uh, uh, just gave me quite the reprieve from uh, from the life I was living with, you know, my dad and his partner, because they were, they were doing their, their one hour Photoshop thing, but they were partying most nights. They were out at the, the clubs in Charleston and, and the, the club, uh, when it closed, the party often came to our house and, you know, my dad's friends, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't rare for them to sometimes hit on me. I think they made the assumption that because I was living with my dad that, and his partner that I, I was gay as well. And, uh, you know, as a 16 year old kid trying to figure out life and having guys hit on you, that was, you know, a shock to to the system where I'm wondering, you know, am I throwing out signals? Am I doing something wrong? Um, But uh, also, you know, as I look back, a great experience for me, Um, you know, all of my experiences, even the most painful ones have been, you know, uh, they're, they're, they've been redeemed, right? They're redemptive experiences now. So I'm thankful for that. But I, uh, I tied in with these guys, the Italian guys, uh, and, uh, the, the, the hoagie guy, uh, ended up selling his shop. He, his family, uh, owned a bunch of restaurants in, in the Charleston area. So he sold this shop to focus on their fine dining, uh, restaurant and the people that he sold it to 
were a couple from Colorado. And these are beautiful people. These are not people that if you looked at them, you would say, oh yeah, sub shop owner, <laughs> you know, they, uh, they're very tan and very blonde and they had a lot of gold and a lot of jewelry. And uh, they, uh, turns out that uh, they had never really been legitimate business owners. The guy was a, a high-end cocaine dealer in Denver and uh, he had he was this close to getting pinched and uh, they grabbed their go bags and moved to Charleston and uh, decided to try to go legit by running this sub shop. And they did that for about three months and uh, it wasn't fun. They weren't making money. They lost their tans and they didn't look as beautiful as they did when they started. So they, uh, the guy that bought that place recruited my dad and then by default, Joe, and then also, Al, the t-shirt shop guy, and uh, Steve, the guy that he bought the, the hoagie shop from, and uh, said, hey, basically, I want you guys to sell cocaine for me. Um, his girlfriend had a ex-husband who was a mob-connected guy who was actually in prison in Connecticut at the time, and he was the, he was the way that we got the cocaine. And uh, so the we'll call the, the big guy... Uh, Robert, right? So Robert would uh, would go down to Miami on the train, get the drugs, come back. Uh, yeah, it became my job at one point to divide up all all the drugs. But then uh, before that, before I got into it, uh, I don't know who did it, but they would uh, distribute the drugs to my my dad and uh, Al and Steve, and they would all you know sell and and whatever. So this was like giving drugs like that to my dad and Joe was like putting the you know, I don't know. I won't even come up with a metaphor. It was just a bad idea. They used more of the product than they sold. And our house became this place. I, I remember just sitting at the dining room table at our place, just in fear. Like, I don't know who these people are. You know, there's drugs all over the place. I'm waiting for, you know, somebody to pull out a gun or for the cops to, to bang down the door at any moment. Um, and I, you know, I stayed away from it. But the first time I ever tried cocaine, uh, there was some party going on at our place. And my dad had this little mirror on a table and people were snorting, you know, cocaine through a $20 bill. And he slid the mirror with, you know, a couple lines on it towards me and said, Hey, bud, you should try this, you know, and it'll make you feel better. And I'm like, no, you know, and I was 16 at the time, uh, Nancy Reagan was telling everybody just say no to drugs. So I was trying to do that. Uh, so I said, no, I said no three or four times. And he just kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And then finally, um, you know, I just gave in and, and, uh, and tried probably a half line. I have no idea if it had any effect. I don't remember feeling, uh, the effects of it. I just remember feeling very sad that my dad had given me this drug and that I had actually taken it. Um, so it wasn't long after that, that my dad, I woke up one morning, my dad and uh, Joe were gone. There was a note on the kitchen counter saying, Hey, we had to leave. Uh, I'll be in touch. I think they were, they were probably 40, $50,000 in debt to, uh, to Robert. And there was no way that they were going to pay that. And they were uh, rightfully afraid for their lives. So I didn't see my dad for oh, probably almost four years after, after that, I didn't think I'd ever see him see him again. So the one thing I told my dad when he called me when I was living in Michigan to tell me that he was gay was I said, Hey, dad, don't get AIDS, right? Whatever you do, don't get AIDS. And he, uh, he said, Oh, I won't, I'm not going to do that. Um, a year after he left, uh, he called and, uh, I don't know how he called me, but he did. Oh, he called the store that I was working at and he, uh, he, he told me that he had AIDS. So he was diagnosed with AIDS in 1987 and, uh, and ended up living, for 14 years after that. So, uh, which I'll tell you more about, but, um, when he left Robert, the guy that was running everything kind of pulled me, uh, in close to him. And I think he did that initially to see if he could find out, uh, if I knew where my dad was, but after a little while, he realized that uh, we'd both been screwed over by my dad and we were kind of in the same boat. So, uh, by a strange twist of circumstances, I became his most trusted, employee, if you will, I, we ended up, uh, raising the level of our, our business. You know, we started selling, uh, just larger amounts. We sold only the, the smallest amount we would sell to, instead of dealing to people ourselves, we started dealing to dealers. And so the, the smallest amount we would sell would be, uh, an eight ball or an eighth of an ounce. And it was my job, not only to, uh, break and package all that stuff, but to, uh, deliver it to our, 
our uh, <laughs> our clients, um, which was a risky business. And you know, at 17 years old, I was getting into all the clubs in Charleston, and you know, I thought it was great at the time. You know, um, I thought it was great for a while until uh, we were all at a, a bar one night. Uh, drinking tequila and uh, taking hits of Coke in the bathroom. And we're giving a bag to each other. And uh, when it came my turn to take the bag and go into the bathroom, I took way too much. You know, I just stuck the straw in the bag and took a hit out of it. And I don't know how much I did, but I knew instantly that was way too much. I felt the gag reflex and just my heart started pounding, probably uh, in part because of fear, in part because of the drugs. And I went back and I said, hey, I I did way too much. I think I might have a heart attack. And we got to go to the hospital. And they're like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. Well, let's go for a walk, you know? And I realized out on that walk that, uh, well, I thought these guys cared about me. They would rather have me die in the street than take me to the hospital and risk being exposed. And that's when, when things started to turn for me. Um, that's when I started, you know, I'd still go out with them. I'd still do everything that we, we did, but I would uh, throw my head into the pillow every morning, you know, four or five in the morning and just say, God, if you're real, like I thought you were when I was a kid, then get me out of this. You know, and then I'd wake up and do the same thing day after day. Uh, I reached out to my uncle in Chicago somewhere in the midst of that. And he told me that my grandfather was dying. And my grandfather on my mom's side, my mom's dad, uh, he'd just been a huge part of my life as a kid. So I had the money and I decided I'm going to fly to Chicago and see my grandfather. So I did. And, uh, I went to see him in September of, uh, 1988. I was 17 at the time. And, uh, he died in November of 1988. I remember getting to his, his house and just standing outside his door and thinking, what am I doing here? You know, uh, what am I going to say? What kind of conversation are we going to have? You know, I just, I knew I needed to be there, but it scared me to think, you know, now what? So I went in and, uh, his, his wife made us, uh, milkshakes because that was the only thing that he could get down and I sat next to him on his bed and I mean he just he was laying there you know, he was gonna die in six weeks and and you know he just looked like a, a shell of himself and um, I sat with him for a few minutes in a really awkward silence and he broke that silence by putting his hand on my knee and just began to weep and say I'm so sorry Todd I'm so sorry and uh, you know I he knew about my family. Uh, he didn't know, as far as I know, he didn't know that I was, you know, wrapped up in dealing cocaine and all that. But I think he could look at me, no doubt, and see that I probably look like a wreck. And that was a that was a pivotal moment. That was the, a trajectory altering moment in my life. You know, that was like the Jesus moment. Here's my here's my grandfather who's dying and in pain, and his heart is breaking over the pain in my life. And that's when I realized I've uh, I've got to make some changes. So I uh, I called the the folks down in Charleston and I said, Hey, I've got to get out. I don't know how I'm going to get out, but I'm going to get out. Um, my uncle just that year, my my mom's brother had purchased a uh, a five acre estate, and he was living there by himself. And I said, Hey, I need a place to stay. Uh, and I told him, I said, look, I'm involved in this cocaine thing. And I almost died of an overdose, I think. And they let, would have left me on the street. And, you know, and I told him all these stories, like where I'd almost been arrested, you know, just so many close calls. And uh, and he just said, you know, yeah, no, you, you can't live with me. Um, and uh, I just, you know, remember breaking down in tears and said, you know, I'm going to get arrested or end up dead. Uh, no pressure but I need a place to live. And, uh, and he said, no. Um, but then one of his friends, he must've reached out to a friend and said, you know, my punk nephew asked me to, you know, move in with me. And then his friend said, well, look, man, look at the place you live in. If you can't help family with what you have, what good are you? And, uh, and, you know, and that guy's name was Jerry Grumbles. I'm forever grateful to Jerry Grumbles. So my uncle said, yeah, you can come and move in. So I went back to Charleston and, uh, stay, I was there for about a week, I think, uh, getting my stuff together to, to move out. And uh, they threw me a big party on, on the yacht that uh, Robert had in, in Charleston Harbor the night before I left. I had actually uh, reached at that, by that point, I reached out to my mom and my mom brought my sisters to Charleston for the last couple of days I was there. And that threw me into 
like a panic, like my worlds collided in a way I wasn't expecting. And I, I didn't, couldn't handle it, you know? So here's my drug world and my family world, you know, all in the same place at the same time. And I remember just going into the uh, bathroom at the restaurant that we were operating out of and, and uh, sitting in the corner of that bathroom and, and uh, breathing into a, in and out of a paper bag, trying to figure out how to, how to deal with, with what was going on. And as I, even as I think back about that, uh, my, my sisters, especially, you know, they just didn't get, they didn't get a great view of their big brother. They didn't get the love that they deserved. And, you know, over the last many years, we've, we've done a lot of work to repair those relationships, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of brokenness there. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will present a new inspirational story about God's saving work every two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest theologians, speakers, authors, scholars, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work. After a long and prayerful discernment, it became very clear this was God calling. In fact, I've never been more sure about what God wanted me to do. What's also clear to me is that I will need a lot of help to make all this happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but I can't do this alone, and I can't get help if I don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help me do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? Even small gifts given regularly make all the difference. If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictioninfaith.com, and click on the Donate button and help me as I work to help others. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. What, what's captured me here is, is that you ask God to help you, and, uh, and then you're going to live. I want to know the journey uh, that God is taking you on that got you from there to being a pastor. I mean, how does that Yeah. Happen? Yeah. So I, I moved in with my uncle. <clears throat> uh, I, ch- I checked in with, with some of my um, childhood friends. And uh, through like one of my former Sunday school teachers, I got a job at Waste Management. I'd gotten my GED um, while I was a drug dealer. I, you know, I was dealing drugs, but I was responsible in case I ever wanted to go to college. I got my GED. So I, um, I started taking classes and, uh, you know, my friends were like, so my Christian friends were like, hey, you got to come to church, man. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to go to church. Uh, people like me don't go to church. Um they're like, yeah, you, you should come. It's okay. I'm like, no, I'm not going. And then finally Christmas came around and my friend Sean was like, hey, Todd, even people like you come to church on Christmas and Easter. So you can come to church, man. So I went to church on Christmas Eve and it was a church that my parents had had gone to and I hadn't been there in, you know, six years. And uh, people remembered me and they brought me back and, you know, they welcomed me in. Um, this church was focusing on what it means to live out God's grace at that time. And so people were very intentional about that in just a really powerful way. And they made me feel like I belong there. I and mean, then I smelled of cigarettes and, you know, I looked like crap and, uh, but they still, they still welcomed me in and, and a couple of families just decided, you know what, we're, we're going to make you part of our family. So when we have birthday parties or, Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever it is, uh, Sunday dinners, you're going to be there. And, you know, vacation, you're coming with us, you know, just that kind of thing. Um, you know, they were parents of friends of mine, but they, they welcome me in and they didn't ask any questions. You know, they didn't, they didn't try to change me. You know, sometimes I think we, when people come in from the outside, we, you know, we feel like it's our job to fix people and they didn't do any of that. 
they just let me be uh, who I was. And they, they were really, to, to the best of their ability, living expressions of Jesus to me. And then when I was ready to tell them where I'd been and what I, what I did, they were like, yeah, we figured it was that, but you know, we they love must, you. They must've sensed it somehow that you'd been orphaned and that you needed some TLC. They knew, they, they knew the story of my parents. They knew like they, they got that much. Like, you know, they either knew my parents uh, when I, when we were all there, they knew that they were divorced. Uh, and I'm sure I told them that my dad was gay, you know, and living and doing whatever. So all that stuff that probably more than anything impacted, impacted me in terms of uh, identifying a calling and a philosophy of, of ministry. You know, I, I still fought the idea of ministry. You know, I took uh I took an accounting class at Prairie State College in uh, Chicago Heights, Illinois. And anybody that knows me knows that that's not a strong suit of mine, right? <laughs> Math, accounting. So my best accounting move was to return the book and get my $56 back from the bookstore. <laughs> and uh, I did that. And I, I remember walking through the commons area of that school going, okay, God, I'm not going to be an accountant, but I'm not going to be a pastor. And then I, I got invited to, uh, to be a part of the student ministry at the church I was in in Chicago. And I, I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. But I'll be the games guy because you don't want me talking to kids about anything spiritual because I'll just mess them up. And so I did games for a while. And then I got invited to be a leader on a, a missions trip of high school students to Haiti when I was, I was uh, 19 at that time. And then the youth pastor at this church saw some things in me that I didn't see in myself. And continued to invite me into leadership opportunities. And he was connected at this big camp in uh, Wisconsin, Silver Birch Ranch, uh, that our church and a lot of churches in Chicago and Wisconsin and Minnesota uh, were going to. And uh, I got offered the the job of staff director at that camp at 19. It was, I was barely a year out of, you know, being just a little more than a year, uh, you know, removed from being a drug dealer. And uh, my job was to oversee camp staff all the high school and uh, college age kids you know so, so yeah so how how's your transition from being uh, you know in this drug world and and uh you know with your addiction i mean i don't know how addicted you ever felt like you were but you were you know using and and now you're in a new environment where that's really not something you yeah was it, did it call back to you in any way was it was it a start later off? later it did uh it took a while so it was it was uh yeah. So you hear people that say, well, God healed me of, of my addiction, which I, I gotta be honest, I'm skeptical of that, you know, because, because I've been through it that like, I know God, God removes us. He redeems our, you know, we removed from the situation we're redeemed from it, but I don't know that I would ever say I'm, I'm healed of it. I didn't, I really liked, I got to a place where I really liked the cocaine and I enjoyed it. And I would always be the first one to say, let's, let's, uh, let's crack some lines on the, on the mirror or whatever. But I wasn't as uh, emotionally involved with the drug as I became with other drugs later on in my life. So when I left Charleston, it was relatively easy for me to leave it behind. Like smoking was harder smoking. I had to like really work to get off of smoking, but uh but it was easier for me to, to get away. I felt like at that point, when I was talking to people about drugs and drug use and drug abuse, my biggest thing was, well, get away from the environment. You know, if you get away from the environment, you'll be fine. And that's only half, you know, well, not even half, that's only part of the deal. Uh, but I didn't recognize that because I hadn't, that wasn't part of my story yet. It wasn't until I got hooked on painkillers when I was in my thirties and that lasted for a decade or more uh, that I realized what it was to, to really have an emotional relationship with, with a drug. And, uh, and that really screwed me up. So it was relatively easy for me to make the transition because there wasn't anything around me. And it was like a night and day thing for, for a long time, you know, and uh, you know, I, I met my wife, we got married, we came out here, you know, I was a youth pastor and just kind of was going up the ladder and, you know, became a lead pastor, had a couple back injuries, ended up, with a doctor here in, uh, in Seattle that uh, was the number one prescriber of opiates in the state of Washington. And he was, it was really easy to get any kind of drug from him. 
when and Oxycontin was relatively new on the scene. And, uh, you know, he's like, Hey, you should try Oxycontin. He introduced me to it. And then I'd run out early and he'd go, well, you were taking what? 10 milligrams three times a day. Well, let's just go to 20 milligrams, your insurance company. If we change the dose, they'll roll with it. Right. So he's like, he knows more than I do about this. And, uh, initially I just thought, okay, well, my doctor knows what he's doing and it, it's legit. And then I realized, uh, well, I got to a point where I was thinking, well, there's, there must be a fine line between dependency and addiction because I'm dependent on this medication, but am I addicted? And uh, once I started having that discussion with myself, I was already addicted. <laughs> you know, I was well into it. I just didn't know it. And I, my denial was telling me that because I was getting a prescription from my doctor that all was well. So he was warned uh, to stop and then he didn't. And uh, then they took his license away. So I, I was a pastor, right? So when I was taking these drugs, I'd had multiple surgeries. And so there were times I felt I needed the drugs. And then times when I didn't really need them physically, I needed them emotionally. And I was just stuck. Uh, and I didn't feel like as a pastor, I could go to my board and say, look, I'm having trouble uh, with opiate meds. Can I, can you guys help me out with that? I just felt like that, that would, I'd be fired. And, uh, and then I'd still have the same problem, but you know, my family wouldn't have my income. So I kept it to myself. And ultimately uh, I got to a place where I was invited to consider taking the turning, doing a turnaround for a church uh, in one of the suburbs here in Seattle, a church of about a thousand. And uh, they were, they were losing, I, I say they were losing uh, people, money, and morale at a world-class pace. And so I went in and, and I I helped them turn around. I wasn't really taking a lot of drugs at that time, um, but there were moments during that journey that I did. Uh, but it was a job where uh, in order to do it well, I couldn't be a candidate for the long-term job. And so I helped this church turn around and, and I got the staff back on board and, you know, we made some changes to, you know, it just became a, a healthy place and uh, all the things that were, were going the wrong way started to go the right way. You know, attendance started to go up, you know, the finances were better, morale was better. And I had to leave at the end of all that and, and walk away from it, which was a profoundly hollow experience because I didn't know what the next thing was. And I didn't trust God for the next thing. So the next thing I knew, I was loading up on Dilaudid and uh, not remembering some things, you know, and just doing, you know, I, I was near death, no doubt. I, uh, I was taking so much Dilaudid that I blacked out and I'd never had blackouts before. I was taking so much Dilaudid that, uh, that I wasn't breathing right. And I thought I had pneumonia or something, or, or I thought I had, uh, this is my brain's not working right either. Cause I thought I had maybe uh, mono. And so I go to the emergency room, you know, and, um, and I don't remember most of it. And I have a talk screen done and my friend's like, what's wrong with you? And my friend that took me there is like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I hit the talk screen from my wife and, uh, then she started looking at my pill bottles to find out what was actually in them. And she found uh, Dilaudid in, in a prednisone bottle. And, and, uh, and that's when I knew like, okay, I, I've got to do something about this. And even before that moment took place, I remember thinking, I've, I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know how to, I can't get out of this. I'm so far down the road on these meds. There's a, you know, you can't stop cold Turkey or you go into debilitating withdrawals. So what am I going to do? And, uh, I didn't have a plan. So getting, getting caught kind of, or, or being found out was brutal, you know, on my relationship with my wife at the time, but it was, uh, it was also an opportunity. It just gave me the freedom to say, okay, now's the time to step into uh, help. So I went to, to get some help. So I went to, uh, went to the Betty Ford center and spent Christmas at the Betty Ford center. And I realized that like the more discerning addict, plans their their trip to rehab around Christmas, not during Christmas. <laughs> so everybody left around the 23rd and like the worst of the worst of us were there. Oh man, I got there and people were like, hey, what do you do? And so at the Betty Ford Center, there are a lot of uh, younger people who are, whose parents are, you know, a lot of wealthy younger people from the LA area um, and a lot of professionals or, you know, uh, the people I hung out with there, a uh, couple of kids from San Diego, but then also, uh, 
you know, an actor that a lot of us would know, a doctor from Beverly Hills and a SpaceX engineer, we would, you know, I took up smoking again when I was there just to pass the time. We'd stand by a tree and have some cigarettes and uh, and talk about, you know, life because we were just in a different stage than a lot of the other people there. Uh, and they would ask me, like, what do you do? And I would say, well, I'm a I'm a pastor. And they go, you're a what? You know, and you're here. And I would say, yeah, yeah. And I said, but I'm not the only pastor who's ever struggled with this, but it's really hard for us to admit it. And because I wasn't in a church at the time that I, you know, kind of hit my rock bottom. Uh, I didn't have really that title did wasn't stand the title pastor wasn't standing in the way of me getting some help like it had for me in the past. Yeah, so you're serving a, a church now and you've written a book about all this. How's that going? Yeah, good question. Uh, I'm serving in a church that so I didn't tell this church This is a really conservative church. Uh, and I feel like I landed here because they were going through a transition and I've got experience in transition. I was able to, to help them in some ways. I told them, uh, so the advice I got from, uh, from all my professionals and, and, and friends uh, was, you know, you don't have to share in an interview process where you've been because, you know, if you had cancer, you wouldn't necessarily lead with that. So um, why would you lead with this disease? So I didn't, and I let them get to know me for a bit and I got to know them to the point where I felt like I could trust them with this information and they could handle it. And they have, you know, for the most part, not everybody's handled it well, but, and I think there are a lot of people that don't know how to handle it. But before, even when I was in the throes of my addiction, I didn't understand addiction. You know, I didn't understand what this was. Uh, I do now. And I think part of the reason I'm here is to, is to help this church realize that, you know, there are a lot of people, even in churches like this, where everybody comes on a Sunday looking their best and offering their, their, their best, you know, view of themselves. There are a lot of people here who are struggling and are broken and are in pain and are addicted. Uh, and they're the ones that, you know, come to my office and say, we're so glad that you're here. Um, I, and I feel like I can come and talk to you about, about these things. So yeah, I've had people, tell me for years, you should write a book, you should write a book, you should write a book. And so, uh, uh, so I did. And, uh, uh, and I just got just to the point where I was going to publish, but I was asked to, to put it on the shelf here, because the nature of uh, the content, well, they asked me to, to shelf it so that it didn't, uh, didn't cause any trouble here, which I certainly didn't, didn't want to cause trouble. And that was never the, the intent. So for, for the time being, it's shelved. But I do have some uh, I do have some excerpts of things I've written that uh, might end up in that book that I'd, I'd love to share if people want to they go to my website, subscribe. I'm happy to share some stuff that I've written with them. Sure. What's the website? Uh, yeah. Todd Morrison dot live. Todd Morrison dot live. Todd Morrison dot live. Yeah. yeah. So what's your sense for how the, the, the church, you know, that's a big word, you know, it's like saying the media. Right. But the church. Uh, you know, you just shared a little bit about how you said uh, people come and put their best selves forward so that uh, this church that is uh, an institution based on Jesus Christ is really an institution that doesn't allow for brokenness. Yeah, I mean, brokenness is uh, is tough. I've known pastors, senior pastors, lead pastors that have said, I don't feel like I can be honest with my congregation about myself because I've, I'm afraid they'll judge me. And I hear that and I think, oh, my gosh, that um, that makes me sad. And it scares me a little bit. It makes me sad because what's the alternative? And it scares me because I think of the alternative. The alternative is if I can't be honest about who I am in my brokenness, then what am I left with? I'm left with being dishonest or evasive or something, you know, but it's not true. Uh, and that's that's a scary thing for me. Uh, I, I used to be terrified to share with people what was true about my life, but there's just a lot of freedom in it. And I don't go around telling everybody every little secret that, that's going on in my, in my world. But uh, one of the big challenges for me, uh, it, it used, it was easy for me to tell the story of living in Charleston and all that stuff, you know, and because that was well into my past. Uh, it's, it's been much harder to tell my story of recent brokenness, uh, profound brokenness, recent failure, you know, because that reflects more on, on who I am now and, and where I am. And, uh, but there's so much freedom in that. 
if in sharing these things, it allows somebody else to go, oh, wait a second, he's a pastor, he's a leader, uh, and he's broken, and he's honest about it, and God has grace in his life, then maybe I can be honest about it, and maybe I can tap into God's grace. And so that's why I have people at times, like if I preach here on a Sunday morning, uh, Tuesdays we'll have women's Bible study, and there will be a line during their break of people who want to set an appointment with me to talk about the brokenness in their life or the brokenness in their marriage or the brokenness in, you know, the, the life of somebody in their, in their family. And uh, I'm just, I'm thankful for that. And this has not been an easy place for me to be, but if being here allows me to, allows God to use me to, to, uh, to, to help some other folks, then, then it's worth it. I, I was always really good at telling people, believing for other people that God's grace was inexhaustible in their life but I didn't believe it about my own life. And so when I went to Betty Ford at 44 years old and I sat on this park bench and I thought, look, uh, I'm probably done with ministry because how do you land here and recover from, from that? And I remember journaling and just thinking, okay, God, uh, if you still have anything to do with me, what, what's next? And the only opportunities I got after coming out of there were ministry opportunities. And there were, there were several of them. And I ended up here in the most uncommon, uh, you know, the most unpredictable place. Uh, and the reason is uh, God is the God of redemption. God is the God of inexhaustible mercy and inexhaustible grace. And, uh, I used to say this all the time, and now I can say it with even greater conviction because I've experienced it. We can never blow it so much to be out of God's redemptive reach. I think that's a story that so many people need to hear um, because that's the experience so many people need to have. I've I just talked to so many people here who live with such shame and fear and regret, and they you know, we do the comparison game. We compare what we know about ourselves to what we don't know about others. And we lose in that game. If we compare what other people look like to what we feel like, well, they look like they've got it all together. I feel like crap. Uh, something's definitely wrong with me. But the reality is we're just getting the best view of them. You know, we have no idea what's going on in their lives. And, and the truth is we're all broken. And Jesus came not for the, the righteous, but for the, you know, the sinful, the broken. Uh, if we tap into that, you know, our brokenness isn't something to be afraid of or even necessarily ashamed of, but embraced. Um, you know, we can't find healing from, for something that we don't embrace or acknowledge or, or talk about, right? So, um, yeah, that's been, that's been my ministry here. I've come to do a lot of things at this church, but primarily it's been to, uh, to tell the story of brokenness and God's uh, inexhaustible grace. You know, in my experience over the, I've been open in, as a pastor uh, throughout my career, and what I found in the church is that there are some people that are really, really delighted to, to hear that, that I'm broken, that they can be broken too, and, and, and they do come out of the woodwork, but they do stay in the shadows mostly. But then there's this other group that just absolutely hates it, just doesn't, they, they find it to be such a threat and they want to be gone. And, uh, and I've experienced that in every parish setting I've been in. That, uh, and they tend to be kind of the people that probably could uh, use some healing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I used to think that those people had never experienced brokenness, you know, or maybe they, they're the ones that grew up in the perfect homes because that's what they often say. You know, I, I've had people that I would put in that category who've said, uh, you know, I didn't have any dysfunction in my family. And I'm like, whoa, red flag, you know, because uh, we all do. And uh, but so I think that there's just uh, I think there's a lot of pain there. And I think I would agree. I think a lot of them are in a place where uh, where it's failure. If you acknowledge brokenness then you're acknowledging failure and they're so afraid of failure and they are also people who tend to want to be in control of everything in their life and there is so very little that we can actually control in life and uh if the sense is that if you lose control and if you can't stay on top of all this stuff then it's failure and and the fear of what it would look like for their life to begin to you know unravel is so great that we're just not, we're not they're not even going to deal with it I gotta be honest. I don't, uh, 
I can't quite connect that mindset with somebody that is a committed follower of Jesus. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, it was, I mean, who did he spend his time with? I mean, he, he, I mean, Jesus obviously went to the, the, the religious and the broken equally, the religious people just rejected him, you know, and the, the broken people were desperate for him. So it's interesting, you know, it's not for me to judge, but the older I get, the more aware I am of, you know, things that, yeah, just the more aware I am of my brokenness and my profound need for, for Jesus. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just thankful for, for the work that he's, you know, just his, his redemptive work, you know, I don't know how else to put it. I, I just want to say how honored I, I am that you would share your story with me. Um, I just think what an honor it is that I get to sit and hear these stories. You know, I feel it's sacred. I mean, what God has done with you is, is miraculous. Yeah. And continues to do uh, this great work. And it's just, uh, I feel um, grateful that I get to sit and listen to these stories and, and uh, that you'd be willing to share them. Because I know that, that some of these stories can be very, you know, God is going to touch somebody through this story. So I'm really grateful for it, for your time. Yeah, well, well, thanks. I, I'm, uh, me too. I'm, thank you for inviting me. And it's a long story. There's a lot there. Uh, but yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been great. My Story of Addiction and Grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith, which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our Pastor Upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, that phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization.